As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Talking History with Philippa Vincent Connolly. Today I'm talking to Linda Porter, who is a writer, author and historian of the Tudor and Stuart dynasties. Linda, it's lovely to have you here on the podcast today. I'm thrilled that you're going to be talking about something I don't know that much about, the Stuarts actually. I know quite a bit about the Tudors, but not so much about the Stuarts. So I'm sure I'm going to be learning something today. What I would like to know, first of all, is what was it about history that inspired you to study the subject? My interest in history goes back quite a long way. In fact, when I was a small child, when uh, my grandfather, when we were living in rented accommodation, introduced me to a book on one of the many bookshelves. Uh, the, The place was an old house. It had floor to ceiling bookshelves in almost every room. And on one of them was a book by H.E. Marshall called Our Island Story. Um, At the time, like most people, I probably thought that H.E. Marshall was a man. She was, of course, Henrietta Elizabeth Marshall and was a woman. Uh, But um, my grandfather said, would you like to look at these pictures? I wasn't terribly interested in the pictures in the book, but I was enthralled by the stories. And I've always, I suppose, thought of history as a series of stories, which if you're a good historian, you can put together in an interesting uh, way for people so that they can have a better understanding of what took place in the past. Uh, uh, And that was how I really got interested in history. And I think, although H.E. Marshall is desperately unfashionable now and viewed as a sort of bastion of imperialism and all that, which is slightly unfair, that the book isn't quite that Uh, unsubtle in its coverage. Um, But I think many of us, particularly of of perhaps a certain age, um, grounded our initial knowledge and certainly interest in English history in that book. You're actually not wrong there about old books because uh, my interest in history started reading a lot of Jean Plagey when I was about eight or nine, believe it or not. So I can um, completely relate to that. You know, writers like that, it doesn't matter who introduces you to the history. Once you've got the bug, you've got the bug, haven't you? You have absolutely, Philippa. Yes, and I read a lot of Jean Plady as well. Um, I think probably my interest in Catherine Parr, which eventually many, many years later translated itself into a book, uh, was inspired by her novel, The Sixth Wife. That's fantastic. You studied in York, didn't you? I did, yes. Both my first and second degrees in history are are from the University of York. When I first went there, it was a very new university. Um, Having gone back there in recent years to give talks, apart from sort of 
placing myself outside Heslington Hall, which was the administrative centre of the university then when it was much smaller, I have very little clue where I am. It's just expanded so much as to be, to those of us who were some of its earlier intake, almost beyond recognition. But yes, I did. And it was a wonderful place to learn and study history because in the first two years I was there, the campus out at Heslington wasn't completed. It was still being built. And so we had all our lectures and seminars and tutorials in the King's Manor in the centre of York. And I went back there not so many years ago. They just re um, sort of repainted and redecorated the arms of Charles I above the entrance as you go in. And, and I actually found it quite a moving experience to go back there after all those years. Well, it's not it's not a place I've been to as yet, York. I think I briefly went through it when um, I was a fashion student back in the mid-80s, but we didn't really spend much time there. So I've never no. been to the, Min- the big York Minster or anything like that. It's a- well, of course, it's still got a lot of walls around it. You can walk around most of it. And it's, it's just a wonderful city to, to learn history, to study history. In. Um, it was, and also there are a number of great, interesting, houses and cathedrals not that far away like Ripon Cathedral, Castle Howard, you know, various um, places like that. So it was a, a great place to study history. Sounds wonderful. As a historian and researcher um, and writer, you've specialised in the Stuart period. What um, fascinates you about that particular dynasty? Well, I think the Stuarts, um, both in their original spelling in, in Scotland <laughs> with the EW and then the sort of uh, Frank, Francisized version that, that followed with Mary, Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, are um, not well appreciated or understood, uh, and and yet you know they they are a fascinating dynasty. Uh, at the time that uh, of the Wars of the Roses, and then uh, all the subsequent uncertainty about heirs and and um, who would inherit and Henry VIII's uh, search for a, a, a male heir and all that sort of thing. The, the Stuarts had just gone on in Scotland. They became the ruling dynasty in the late 14th century. Uh, and from the early 15th century onwards, one of the most astonishing things I think about Scottish history, which I don't think most people in England and possibly quite a lot of people in Scotland don't, don't fully appreciate, is that no monarch came to the throne during their majority until 1625, when Charles I um, became King of England and King of Scotland. Uh, and when you consider that, uh, I mean, it is a remarkable achievement for a country that's often viewed as small and impoverished, which it was, violent, which it could very often be, you know, full of blood feuds and families at each other's throats. And yet it obviously had a ruling class that, however ambitious in the same way that most of the ruling class was in in Tudor England, uh, nevertheless managed to hold the country together uh, and eventually project it successfully onto the European arena. Uh, and it is, a, 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 as, as a Frenchman once said to me, it was a, une histoire très troublée, and it, it certainly was very troubled. Uh, it's also extremely exciting and interesting, and there is much more to it than Mary, Queen of Scots. And the reason I became interested in it in, in a much more sort of organised and focused way is that when I developed the idea 
of writing a book about Mary Queen of Scots that looked further back, that that essentially covered her backstory and the the wider rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts, which does date to the late 15th century. I really knew very little about what had gone on. I mean, I think to most English people, Mary Queen of Scots arrives in uh, the north of England, um, fleeing from her own country as a sort of fully formed and you don't even know very much about her reign which was not nearly as unsuccessful as some people would like to make it out to be everybody uh, focuses on her marriages don't they and, and yes they do yes and not really what what she actually did during the the time that she was in in scotland and i i think one of the saddest things about mary is is that some of the people who have been most negative to the point of being almost downright vindictive about her have been female historians <laughs> which are which I think is sad, actually. <laughs> so that's how I got interested in the Stuarts. And that's why I, I find them fascinating. You know, how did this dynasty manage to survive, well, basically a couple of centuries of, of uh, not having uh, a monarch who came to the throne? Uh, well, the, the youngest, of course, was Mary herself at the age of six days. James I of Scotland and later James IV were um, nearing um, their majority when they came to the throne. But uh, uh, James I of Scotland spent a lot of his crucial years as a hostage here in England, uh, living under the um, not so benevolent protection of Henry V. Um, so, they, you know, you have all these great characters. And let's face it, I think characters are what we really like in history. As historians, we do um, try and dig down and look more at, at social and economic and wider diplomatic issues. But I think for the for the general public, and certainly in the way that British history, the, the way that is viewed is very much done on the, the characters of the major people, the monarchs and those who served them at the time. But you know what fascinates me about history, even with like um, 500 or 600 years distance, human beings really don't change their behaviour at all or the way they relate to things. We all have the same sort of needs, wants, desires, ambitions. It's just channeled in different ways, isn't it, in history? It's, it's quite fascinating. It is channeled in different ways, yes. And I, I, I think um, while it is undoubtedly true that human nature doesn't change, I mean, the, the circumstances in which we, we find ourselves do, one of the aspects that I find a slight problem, especially with the you know, ever burgeoning um, semi-fictional series on um, the Tudors and people related to them is that there is a tendency nowadays to try and view them as if they were just like us, but in fancy dress. <laughs> and actually, they were not just like us, Philippa, as yeah. you know very well. Yeah. Their, their entire world was framed differently. They, they were just like us in precisely the ways that you've said. But the way they reacted to the reality of the world in which they lived and the, the preoccupations of a, an overwhelmingly... Um, religious society. I mean, I don't think many of them would like or recognise our secular Western society. No, not at all. Uh, though I, I, I think, you know, they were not necessarily all uh, spending all their times on their hands and knees and in church praying. And there would have been, even in those days, uh, a number of people for whom it meant much more than others. Um, but even so, it, it was part of the actual administration and organisation of life for, for people in those days. Yeah. And it, and uh, today you wouldn't get cousins chopping off other cousins' heads, would you? Hopefully not. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, it's quite strange today we're talking and it's the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, but that's the Tudors. So we're going to carry on talking about the Stuarts. Um, What do you think uh, James of Scotland's attitude was towards his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots? Well, I don't think he remembered her at all because he was only about a year old when she fled over the border to England. And his view of her had been shaped um, very much by those who educated him who, um, having put him on the throne and and got rid of Mary, were very keen to make sure that he had an unhappily negative view of his mother. Um, Whether he himself fully held that point of view, I think is difficult to know, because as I'm sure you're well aware, aware, James VI and I is is not the easiest of kings to understand or, or get to know. And that may be because of the circumstances of his upbringing. I mean, he had to face the fact that his mother had been executed um, and that uh, he had done very little to to try and um, prevent this happening. He was, of course, by that time himself on the throne and wouldn't, I think, have been happy to give up his, his role and position there to her. But I think overall, perhaps as he grew older, his view of her was mollified a bit. I, I don't think he necessarily absorbed all the negativity that his tutors had tried to put into his mind. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it also makes you think about what his relationships would like with women generally, you know, with that background of, of not having a mother present in his life, for you know, for most of his life. Well, his relationships, as you know, were rather strange, perhaps. Um, <laughs> Perhaps less so to 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 modern uh, eyes, but I mean, he his bride Anne of Denmark was quite young when they were married. I think she was about fourteen, and although she was rather a difficult woman, he had sort of met his match in her actually. And theirs was obviously a rather tempestuous marriage, but not necessarily a totally unhappy or unsuccessful one. And they did have a number of children, of course. Yes, yeah. What do you think of portrayals of him on film um, that you've seen? You don't see him portrayed on portrayed on film all that often. They tend to show him as a kind of uh, slightly um, physically unattractive, or very physically unattractive man, and perhaps overly fond of his own intellect and proud of it, but not as a person that one can respond to with any great degree of sort of understanding or, or compassion, I think. Uh, he, he always seems to me where he is portrayed on film. And I remember there was a series some years ago about Mary, Queen of Scots and um, her son, in which Robert Carlyle played him. Mary, Queen of Scots was played by Clémence Poesie, who went on to become famous in the Harry Potter films. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's been shown for quite a while, but it was actually rather good. I mean, most of these things, let's face it, aren't. Mm. Um, and I think it still had the standard, you know, Mary was enamoured of Bothwell thing, which few historians nowadays really believe. Yeah. Um, but the portrayal of James VI by Robert Carlyle, as you would expect, was really rather fine. Mm. And I think perhaps captured his enigmatic and unpleasant qualities, as well as making him more comprehensible as a ruler and what his aims actually were. I know. I mean, I've I've read quite a lot about his interest in um, witch trials and witch hunting and all that kind of thing, but I actually have um, a theory that he had mild cerebral palsy. 
which I've actually got to look into further. Um, I can remember when I was a teaching assistant in a history lesson and there was a, the teacher had put a portrait of him up on, on the screen. And she said he apparently had a very long tongue and would dribble when he ate his food and all this kind of thing. And I just thought it was a very strange thing to say about him, but quite interesting. So, you know, I'm going to have to delve into that a bit deeper in terms of his physicality. I, I think you should do, because it, it is an interesting question. I, I think... The historian Anna Whitelock has been working on a new biography of him for some time, and I don't know what her view of all of this is going to be. Um, I know Leander de Lisle had developed a theory, um, I think, following on her book. You know, her first book was called After Elizabeth and, and looks at the um, the actual way the succession passed from Elizabeth to James and what the first years of his reign was like. But I, I think she now feels he may have had attention deficit disorder, which doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't have cerebral palsy, but he, he clearly did have some degree of uh, what at the time was considered physical abnormality. You know, I, I wouldn't say anything more than that about it. I mean, it didn't prevent him from being, I think, a competent horseman, for mm. example, which was important for a king even by the early 17th century. I mean, if you couldn't sit astride a horse in the medieval times, you were viewed as, as being worse than useless. And it's as often viewed as one of the reasons that King James III of Scotland was finally overthrown in 1488, because he just didn't seem to be a, a proper sort of warrior king and, and have the right equine relationship, as it were. I mean, even, um, even Richard III was able to ride a, a horse and very well. Exactly, yes. I, I mean, you. Uh, I think it's not just whether you could ride it, but how, whether you look sort of regal on it. Well, I mean, James VI and first seems to have impress people sufficiently in that way and uh, I, I mean he was a he was a canny fellow uh, as you know uh, I mean much of the difficulties that his son in Charles I inherited had begun not just in James I's reign but at the end of Elizabeth I's reign um, so one can't blame the Stuarts for all of the uh, uh, problems that, that that ensued. Um, James I had managed to, to see his way through this, of course, eventually, perhaps because he, he had a more um, flexible outlook to government, um, despite all the stuff about the divine right of kings and everything than, than, he, than his son did. But of course, by the time Charles I came to the throne in 1625, a lot of the constitutional, religious and economic problems, which had begun to seep into national life at the end of Elizabeth's reign, uh, were really out there and evident and had to be dealt with. Um, the way that Charles I dealt with them ultimately lost him the throne. But, you know, who's to say that if he had found a, a better accommodation between himself and the parliament whose um, monies and taxation he desperately needed, then perhaps he would have survived. His father managed to survive at any rate. <laughs> As a historian and writer, who would you most like to research and write about that you haven't yet? That is a very good question. Um, uh, and the response may actually surprise you. I mean, originally I was a specialist in the late 18th century in the French Revolution. And I've been trying ever since to get back there, but it's not a period that sells very well, um, uh, at least not at the moment. But I had in mind and did a lot of research at one stage to write a biography of Hortense de Beauharnais, who was the um, 
daughter of, of Josephine, Napoleon's first wife, right. you know, by her first marriage. Uh, because hers is a, a, a fascinating life as well. You know, her, her parents were both imprisoned during the terror and her father was executed. Her mother escaped largely because of the overthrow of Robespierre, which came just about in time. Her mother then managed to support herself as the mistress of various important men during the period that followed the, the terror uh, and eventually agreed rather reluctantly to marry um, Napoleon so that Hortense and her brother uh, Eugene were thrust suddenly you know, into the very height of political and, and family power uh, and then, of course, only to u- lose it when um, Napoleon first abdicated and then had to flee the country after Waterloo. Um, and, and there are some wonderful stories and, and people in there um, because she's she's this little girl who um, had affairs. Um, she eventually had an illegitimate son. Her son became Napoleon III. And it is a good story, which I think most people know nothing about. But she is a French woman. And whether that will go down well with an English historical audience these days, one really doesn't know. Well, I, I think it would be worth a try because look how popular the, the series Versailles was. Uh, yes, that's true. I mean, it's a later period. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, it, it, it might well be. I mean, it has the same sort of passion and uncertainty involved in it. Yes, I mean, Versailles is an interesting example of a series that most people thought was really awful when it first started, but it kind of grew on people uh, and wasn't quite as awful as it was made out to be, I think. And if it's interested people in French history, then it will have done, you know, a great service. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, I, I love watching period dramas purely for the costume alone and the sets, as long as they're done very well. Going back to the Stuarts, what did you actually think of the film The Favourite? I haven't seen it, to be honest. Um, the reviews I read of it made it sound so annoying that I wasn't sure I could bring myself to see it, but perhaps that was wrong. I mean, it, it wasn't... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Meant exactly as a historical drama with any degree of, of, of truth to it, I don't think. Uh, and I'm sure it was quite entertaining. 
Queen Anne is an interesting and, and, and actually now you've raised it rather neglected figure in her own right, I think. I mean, most people think of her as some fat, sad person who had 15 children and none of whom survived into, you know, even their teens. Uh, but actually, as the last of the Stuart monarchs, she, she is interesting and her commitment to government and her, her achievement as Queen is a bit underrated, I think. Yes. Well, she helped the union, didn't she, at the end of the Yeah, year? well, the union took place during her rule, yes. So one of the misapprehensions that I quite often find in talking about the Tudor and Stuart period is that when James VI came south to become James I of England, the two countries were united. They were not the crowns were united, but the countries remained separate and separately administered until 1707, as you've just said. Mm. What um, projects are you currently working on? I'm currently working on a biography, a new biography, um, which I hope will finally do her justice of a neglected Tudor, Margaret Tudor, who was, of course, the Queen of Scots uh, and mother to James the fifth and therefore grandmother to um, Mary, Queen of Scots, and the elder sister of of Henry VIII. Uh, and one of the interesting and less often mentioned aspects of their relationship is that there is a fierce sibling rivalry going on there, um, which, which is quite interesting. I mean, Margaret had the most dramatic life. You know, married at the age of 13 to a man 17 years her senior, who had had numerous mistresses and already had a a nursery of illegitimate children in in what was to be Margaret's um, dower palace at Stirling. Um, she quietly but firmly got rid of them, which probably says a lot for a thirteen-year-old. Yeah, but you know who was trained by this extraordinary man, and to me, James the Fourth is one of the most interesting and compelling and charismatic of all late medieval kings you know his his death at flodden was an absolute tragedy for his country but again it's one that they overcame uh, despite the rivalries and confusion of james v's prolonged minority because he was only 17 months old when he came to the throne mm-hmm. um, so uh, and through all of that well margaret came back to England for a short time in sort of 1515 to 17. Um, She had married again. The marriage was uh, a disaster from various points of view, though perhaps less foolish than is often made out. I mean, you you need to understand Scottish politics before you start casting aspersions on what she did at that time. (laughs) Uh, And that's not easy to do. Um, she, she spent a brief time down here in which she was with her brother and young sister, Mary, the, who married briefly Louis XII of, of France. Um, but then she did go back north and spent the rest of her life there. She died just outside Perth um, in 1541, only a year or so, in fact, before her, her son's death. And I mean, she was a true Tudor. She was vehement in support of her son and his rights. Um, she understood what a queen should look like. She was obviously quite an impressive speaker. She knew the importance of display and drama. Uh, and she was a much more important figure in Scottish, Anglo-Scottish politics um, at that period than people have often given her credit for. And uh, much of this sort of change of emphasis, I think we we actually owe to some wonderful work that's been done by a very fine young scholar, Dr. Helen Newsom, who has looked at all of Margaret's letters and particularly concentrated on some from her period as Queen Dowager and Queen Regent in Scotland. Um, she's looked at them from a linguistic 
perspective, firstly, rather than a historical one, but of course has drawn quite a lot of interesting conclusions from this. Uh, and this gave me the idea that, you know, I, I should look again at Margaret. I'd written quite a lot about her in my third book, Crown of Thistles, but she wasn't the focus of that book. It covers several reigns and several people. And so that's what, you know, I, I think has really been an inspiring piece of scholarship. We have all kinds of fine young scholars coming up at the moment. Uh, Helen elected not to write a biography at the time. She was like a lot of young academics, um, more concerned with trying to find a post, a job, which is perfectly understandable. So I put together a proposal which my agent, you know, forwarded to various publishers and it was picked up by Head of Zeus. And I said to Helen, you know, I hope you're OK with this. And she said, yes, you know, great, go to it kind of thing. So that is really the basis, I think, of, of perhaps being able to turn round Margaret Tudor's image, because like a lot of people at the time, she suffered from dreadful character assassination um, by the Victorian historian Agnes Strickland, mm. who has a lot to answer for yeah. in that respect. A lot to answer for for, for other people's characters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I had quite a lot of the research. I'm still doing a fair amount more and I have started to write um, because as you well know publishers never give us long enough to write this sort of thing no <laughs> definitely not <laughs> it's a very arduous process I don't think people who don't write have got any idea what the actual process is like and, and everything it's um it's certainly you have to keep motivated when you're writing but once you've got the finished project there I'm I'm sure it, it feels wonderful you know to have to have done all that research especially if it's it's new research that's never been out there before yes it it, it does I think I don't mind the process of writing I, I mean I, I'm fortunate in the type I have good concentration and can write fairly quickly though I must say as I've got older I find it tires me more <laughs> than it used to physically as well as mentally the process I dislike most is when it goes off to the... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Production part and particularly copy editing, which I find an extremely irritating process. I mean, I've had some wonderful copy editors and I wouldn't envy them their task at all. But I think it's true to say that by the time it's gone through your editor, the copy editor, the proofreader, um, you never want to see it again. Uh, at least I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very strange process. But um, one that's rewarding at the end of the day, isn't it? Oh, yes, when, when you're when you're 
when your books arrive, you know, back from the princes, yes. Yeah, I, I sometimes feel curiously detached from them when I look at them. And when I go back, because, you know, I, I do, like all writers and all historians, I, I am often asked to talk about books which I wrote more than 10 years ago. <laughs> and I look at them and I think, how the hell did I know all of that? <laughs> um, but um, it's obviously all all in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, it, it, it is a strange. But the people that I actually have huge respect for, and I don't think that this is adequately um, comprehended by the general public at all, are some of our leading historical novelists who are required to turn out a book once a year. Mm. And I, I mean, I, it's all very well to say, oh, well, they don't have to do a lot of research. They do do a fair amount of research. Yes, yeah. You look a complete fool if you just try and write something even fictional without knowing the first thing about, you know, the context of the times. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think to be able to do that requires a, a great level of dedication and a skill set that, that as a non-fiction writer I don't actually have I don't think oh, but you know you've you've produced a, a massive amount of work that's really always well received and it's something that you should be really proud of and um Thank you, Philip. you know to not be so detached because they are your babies technically your books <laughs> your books are your babies they are, yes. I do sometimes sit and look at them. I have a pile of them in the living room, and I do just sometimes sit and look at, and look at them and feel um, uh, quite surprised. But I think it's like a lot of things in, in life. You know, when you finish one, you're already moving on to the next. I mean, there will come a point when I'm not, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and sometimes I think it's a good idea to take a break. Anyhow, I mean, I've been fortunate to have a wonderful literary agent Um uh, and a very supportive husband, which, which helps uh, a great deal. Of course. Uh, and also, uh, until COVID hit, to live within um, a reasonable commuting distance of most of the major archives down here in the London area, at any rate. But having said that, I love doing research in Scotland. Um, people up there in the Scottish Records uh, and, and the um, National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh are so um, friendly and helpful. And it's just a, a wonderful city and a wonderful environment, I think. And, and you know, you, you get to go and visit all of these places, which perhaps you might not otherwise go to that are associated with the Stuarts. You know, the uh, ruins of the Abbey of Cambus Kenneth, where... James III and his wife, Margaret of Denmark, who were the parents of James IV of Scotland, where they're buried. And I mean, even as a historian, I'm not sure I would normally go to these places. But it, and, and Linlithgow Castle, and uh, I mean, they they are absolutely fantastic places. And there are some up there that I haven't even been to, for example, which I would love to go to. So uh, it's just a bit of a trek up there, but um, well worth it when you get there. I know. I, I was fortunate enough when I was 17, um, we had family friends who actually lived in Glasgow and I went to stay with them for two weeks and it was the only time I'd ever been up to, to Scotland. And they took me around all the major sites and because I was a fashion student at the time, they took me into a, um, a museum which was closed and the curator actually got out for me lots of Victorian clothing and original bustle dresses and everything. Let me, let me touch them, look at them, you know, 
open them up and have a look inside and see how they were made. And of course, when you're 17, you don't appreciate things. No, no, you don't. No, that, that's, that's fantastic. Eh? I mean, the other thing about visiting sites in Scotland is is that there often aren't many other people there, which worries me in a way. I, I remember going to um, the Abbey at Arbroath up on the, the east coast of Scotland. You know, it's got a wonderful visitor centre with all the sort of latest techniques and lots of information. And there was just my husband and myself and one other man there. Um, so you know you do fear sometimes for the future of these places, but um, historic Scotland keeps them going, hopefully, um, and I'm sure Nicholas Sturgeon will. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's it's all it's all well. One place that is really worth going to, Philippa, um, not just for yourself but for your listeners, if they get a chance, is Stirling Castle, um, because uh, some years ago, for the sort of first decade of the 2000s, it was closed for a long while while they refurbished parts of it um it's got a wonderful new um visitor progression through it and a lot of the major rooms and that were you know the the windows were not replaced obviously because they're um very very old but you know they did a lot of work that was that was needed inside and they have um costumed interpreters who um i mean in fairness to them they do a great job um sometimes they're irritating if you're a historian but you just have to um, repress that because it would be rude. <laughs> yeah, not just that, the you know, reenactors are, are there to help you know engage people with the history. They, exactly. know, they may not know everything, but it does it does help to keep these places alive and people visiting. Yeah, in fact, one of the uh, in costumed interpreters there was speaking to my husband, who's originally from Arkansas in the USA, and she said to him, "I hear you are from the colonies, sir." <laughs> <laughs> It's very clever. Brilliant. Right, now it's time to play Tend to Go, okay, which is where I'm going to ask you some random questions just for fun, okay? So what was the last book you read? It was The Royal Secret by um, Andrew Taylor, the latest in his Marwood and Lovett series of, of Stuart historical crime books. They're superbly done, highly entertaining. It's just come out and I couldn't wait to read it. So I grabbed a copy as soon as possible. <laughs> so still on the Stuart theme then. Exactly. Yes. It's set in the reign of Charles II, actually. And, and uh, his, I would not give too much away, actually, for people who haven't read it. <laughs> Uh, suffice it to say that his his current book, The Royal Secret, talks about a little known aspect of Charles II's diplomacy. And I'll leave it at that. OK, that's great. What was the last outdoor space you visited? The grounds of Hever Castle last week. Oh, fabulous. Uh, what a wonderful place yeah. to visit. Yeah, well, it's it's one of my stately homes you see, <laughs> where I live, and my stately homes are Penshurst Place, Knoll House, and Hever Castle. I know, I know them well. Yes, um, so yes, we went back. We hadn't been in the ground since February two thousand and nineteen. I'm hoping to go and um, have a long chat there with Owen Emerson, their their resident, you know, Berlin and, and Tudor expert. Um, so that that was the last place, and it was wonderful, actually. Uh, I mean, it was so beautiful, and we haven't been there for so long that I really absolutely loved it. Oh, it's a fabulous place to visit. It is, yeah. Right. Well, who was your favourite person from history, and why? I think my favourite person from history is James the Fourth of Scotland, because he is this wonderful um, polymath. Um, 
and charismatic king, uh, 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 sort of huge, he wasn't a huge person, he was sort of average stature and, and height, I think. But but he, he had this amazing personality and thirst for knowledge. And he's one of history's slightly naughty boys with all of the womanizing as well, um, which kind of went with the territory in those days. His son was just as bad, if not worse. <laughs> you know, he, he actually trained his young wife, Margaret Tudor, to be a queen consort and left her in charge of the country when he died so unexpectedly. I mean, it was not a position she held for very long. Some would say that was her fault. I think that's a very simplistic view of what happened. But James took a small, poor country in the northwest of Europe with, let's face it, not the best climate. His aim was to make it known and respected on the European stage. And that he did um, very successfully uh, as king. And he was he was a very cultured man. He was also interested in science, new developments in warfare. I mean, had he not died uh, at Flodden, where on the last day of his life, he probably did make a number, perhaps one crucial strategic mistake, and it cost him his life as well. I think he would be viewed as one of the great medieval kings of, of these islands. And of course, it, it is worth remembering that James the Sixth and First is the descendant of James the Fourth and Margaret Tudor, and it is their line and not Henry the <laughs> that succeeded to ultimately to the thrones of the two kingdoms. Of course, of course. What's your favourite film? Have you got one? I do have a favourite film. Yes, it's Some Like It Hot. Oh, um, one of mine too. <laughs> I mean, I can watch it numerous times and still be almost falling around laughing. Oh. I, it is such a funny film uh, and, and superbly acted by Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon and, and Marilyn Monroe. Um, and I think in these sort of times, we all need something like that that we can go back to. Need, need a bit of comedy, don't we? Indeed, we do. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely loved Marilyn myself. I'd love to write a book on her, but there's so many out there. It's not really worth attempting it. So, many, so much has been said about her already that I don't think we could add to it. I must try and get Scott um, Fortner on, um, on the podcast because he has got the most amazing collection of her personal belongings oh and I would love to talk to him about that yeah that sounds fascinating it does it does if you could live anywhere in the world where would it be I'm uh, probably Paris oh. um, because I did live there as a graduate student while I was doing research for my doctoral thesis and, and to me there is nowhere quite like Paris you know those great boulevards which have course were created under Napoleon III and a lot of the old parts of Paris were knocked down to make way for them. Um, I just have very happy memories of it. I think if not there then either Rome or, or possibly Edinburgh. I, I I think I may by now be too old and rheumatic to live in Edinburgh during the winter um, but people assure me that this is quite a false view but um, I could live in Edinburgh. Well, I think. Wonderful. If you could do any other job than the one that you're doing, what would it be? I'm absolutely happy with the job that I, I do at the moment. I mean, I think the, the only other thing I might seriously consider in a few years' time is just actually retiring. <laughs> uh, I worked for a long time after I came back from the United States where I'd been in the academic world. I worked in the corporate world. 
uh, when I went back to doing research and writing, I didn't necessarily anticipate that I'd be doing it for quite so long after my early, it was very early uh, uh, retirement, actually. But uh, I would perhaps have enjoyed being an academic, you know, a a history don, to use an old-fashioned word. The one thing that, that had always slightly given me pause about that is that Yes, you you are part of a very fine community, though sometimes it's as competitive and backbiting as the corporate world, I think. And you have access to all sorts of libraries and resources and things which which I, as an independent scholar, don't necessarily so easily have. And you have the opportunity to talk to uh, your colleagues and exchange ideas a great deal. Um, but the thing that always struck me about it, and I thought I thought this, I remember, even when I was a graduate student, was that you get older, but the students remain the same age. <laughs> I'm, not quite sure, I'm not quite sure how I would have reacted to that over a period of time, but I would have liked to have spent some time. Um, I mean, I did teach for a while in, in various universities and colleges in New York, so I wouldn't say I haven't done it, but perhaps I would have liked to have done it for longer. Mm, interesting. Is there anything else about your life that you would change? To have been healthier. I suffer from quite a lot of autoimmune problems, and they've got worse as they do as I've got older. Um, I mean, none of them is in itself fatal, but they make life more painful and more tiring. Um, And also, I think, to have been happier at school. I didn't enjoy being at school, not very much at all. I enjoyed some of the teaching, but I went to a school um, of a sort that doesn't exist anymore now, actually. It was known as a direct grant school. In those days, that meant that it was a private school, but in order to get government funding, it had to take a quarter of its pupils who had passed the 11 plus. And I was one of those. And there was always an atmosphere between us and and the fee payers until we got much towards the top of the school. Then by that time it had disappeared. But it it wasn't pleasant. What do you actually do to relax? Well, um, this may surprise you, and I'm going to go down and do it after this. Believe it or not, I love watching cycling, road racing. This is from someone who can barely ride a bike. I haven't been on a bike for donkey's years. But we started to watch the Tour de France because it is a wonderful travel log, an advertisement for France. You know, you, you just see the most wonderful scenery. And uh, it took us about two years. Initially, we thought, what the hell is going on? You know, what is this? Why are all these people riding in groups? What, what are they doing? You know, and finally, like uh, a lot of things to do with sports and things like that, we finally figured out with good commentary what was going on. And uh, currently I'm watching the Giro d'Italia, the the Tour of Italy, um, which is also a wonderful advertisement for Italy, of course. And I I remember last summer um, watching the Tour de France, which was held very late. It's normally held in in July. And last year it was held right at the very end of August, which meant that it was actually far less hot for the riders, which was probably a good thing. But down in Provence, they they came down over one of the old bridges and into the Provencal town of Nyons, and at the time, I would have been given anything to be sitting in the square there having a coffee. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, People watching is a fascinating occupation. <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, but, it, you know, it, it was hard back then. We didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. I mean, if you told me then that I would now be doubly vaccinated and at least in theory, you know, pretty much protected from the disease, I think I'd have been amazed. Oh, 
but um, yes, I'm I'm hoping to go back there next year at any rate. And and at least if you can't go there, you can see some of these places you're familiar with on the. I mean, so that's how I I I mean I love going to the theatre and concerts as well, but that hasn't been possible for quite a long time. Of course, of course. Well, the, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. I've really enjoyed it. We've had a bit of geography. We've had loads of history. We've talked about books. I think we've covered virtually everything. <laughs> I hope so, Philippa. And I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me and saying what a great initiative I think your podcast is, because it's, it's just that little bit different from other people's. And I think people will love it for that reason. It's kind of funky. It's, it's talking <laughs> about history in general and all sorts of topics. I think I think it just gives a bit of variety rather than just talking about one particular period or it's broadening my horizons as well which is really important because I'm learning things I didn't know too. (laughs) Oh I think we all are still I mean that's one of the great things about history you're always learning something. Well on that note I would like to say thank you so much for joining me I've really thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon thank you so much. Thank you so much, Philippa. Take care. Bye-bye. Join me again next time when we'll be talking more history with Philippa Vincent Connolly. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.